Hello and welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We're thrilled to be joined today by Danielle Tom and Lucy Whitmore, both of the Museum of London. So can you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about the museum for our international audience, what you do there and how you came to be there? So the Museum of London is, as very much suggested in the name, a museum all about London's history. So in many respects, it's a social history museum. It tells the story of London's people, of the place through time from prehistory up to the present day. Um, but of course, London being the exciting, dynamic, controversial place that it so often is, it's so much more than a pure social history museum. Uh, we have an art collection, we have decorative arts. Um, we obviously are a very socially engaged museum. We collect material relating to, to protest and to radicalism. And it really reflects London's status, not just as a major city and a center of consumption, but as a national and even international capital. My role there is curator of making, which is one of those fantastic job titles that gets people going, oh, how fun, what is it? And what it actually entails is looking after our later decorative arts collections. So that's 1700 approximately up to the present day and the usual suspects in deck art. So ceramics, furniture, jewelry, silverware, glass, etc. Oh, it does sound like one of those jobs that I'm immediately jealous of, so yeah. And Lucy? Yes, hello. Um, so I am curator of fashion at the Museum of London, uh, which means that I have the privilege to look after our dress and textile collection. 24,000 objects dating from around the 16th century to the present day, and it's really a spectacular collection. I would say that one of the real strengths of the Museum is the way that we put different objects and different collections in conversation with each other. Um, so whether that's, you know, something Roman next to something contemporary or um, just very, very different types of objects, different types of collections that really reflect the history of the museum and what we're doing now with contemporary collecting being a real strong point for the museum um, at the moment with programmes like Curating London, who do a lot of kind of community based collecting work. But it's also reflected in the way that we work at the museum. So a lot of us work across the collections, despite being subject specialists. And I think that's where we find all these really interesting intersections at the museum. I think for me, as a visitor to the museum, something that I always feel is that it's it's a really dynamic space and it's genuinely representative of kind of evolving community in London as well. So that brings us on nicely to talk about the new exhibition so London making now do you guys want to maybe tell us a little bit about the rationale behind the show how you came to put it together and what it's all about the show London making now is actually the culmination of a wider collecting project that has been going on at the museum since 2018 when I joined the museum the year before that the curator of making job was a new role, not just for me personally, it was actually a new role at the museum. And as such, there was a degree of um, 
know, freedom almost in defining what exactly that, that role was for. One of the stated items in my remit was to build a collection of contemporary material relating to making in London. Now, obviously, making is a concept that has many different applications, many different facets. Um, but realistically, you know, I'm only one person and, and not an octopus, so I had to focus. And it occurred to me that, you know, we have this wonderful decorative arts collection. We have the, the works of some of London's most significant and innovative makers um, stretching over the past few centuries. We don't have anything that reflects the contemporary equivalent. We don't have anything reflecting you know, the work of London's best and also emerging makers today. Now, obviously, collecting that kind of material costs money and money, as we all know, in museums is always in short supply. So I was very lucky to be able to obtain a grant from the Art Fund. The Art Fund run a scheme, which they call New Collecting Awards, in which they make block grants available to curators who, I, I guess, like myself, are at the kind of mid-stage of their career, neither early career nor senior yet. And the idea is that you pitch for one of these grants with a, a kind of defined collecting project, not a shopping list, alas, but, a series of uh, justified parameters for what you want to collect and why and how it fits into your institution's broader collection. So that's how this project was born. So using that grant over the next couple of years, I was able to acquire well, the objects that you, you see on display in London Making Now. Now, of course, if you want to think about you know, making in London, craft in London, whatever you want to call it. There's almost, you know, an embarrassment of riches, an overwhelming amount of choice. Where do you start? And that's a challenge that I faced at the very beginning of this process. So there are three collecting criteria which have informed this project from the beginning. You'll see that in the objects on display. Every object that's been acquired fits at least one of these three, if not more. Either it's a piece which in its form or its materiality, speaks to London's history as a centre of craft and design, or it's an object which expresses some aspect of the maker's own biography, their experiences, their lived experiences as a Londoner, which they've brought to bear on their creative practice, or the object in its form or materiality speaks to some pertinent social issue that's affecting London today, such as climate change. And as I said, many of the objects featured in the display fit more than one of these criteria, but that was a very useful set of parameters for me to work within because in the context of the Museum of London, it meant that everything collected fitted in with the museum's ethos of socially engaged collecting and displays. Everything, on display can be related in some way back to London's people and back to a sense of place. I love this idea as well that you're kind of creating these lines of inheritance in London's history and tying what's happening now and how London is changing, how it's ever growing and ever evolving. You're tying that back with where it's come from to, I guess, kind of plot out where it's going in some respects or to, to give visitors have an idea of the different roads that the London, you know, Londoners as makers might be taking today. That's something that's really, really present 
in the display, the idea of inheritance, whether that is to do with your family story or being the next person in a long line of London craftspeople, you're inheriting the trade. And I, so my role in this display was that when Danielle went on maternity leave to have a human baby, I looked after her exhibition baby, um, covered uh, curating this display uh, whilst Danielle was on mat leave, just as we led up to opening. And, and she very conveniently timed it so that she returned from that mat leave two weeks before opening. So we could do that bit together. So I came to these objects not knowing the full background of how Danielle had put them together, how they'd been selected for the display. And what was really nice about that was that I could kind of pick up on these themes in quite an organic way as we formed the display together. And yeah, I, I think inheritance and, and the kind of legacies of the collection was something that was really nice. I love the idea as well of sort of inheritance or at least collaboration between the two of you actually, and that you know, you, you, Lucy, you kind of taking over the project as Danielle is away on maternity leave and then kind of, Danielle, you returning to it and seeing what Lucy's done, how she's shaped it and how she's kind of understood those narratives that you wanted to bring to the fore and then putting them literally on display together and kind of working out, you know, the nuances of those narratives. It's just really interesting that you've been talking about kind of the dialogues that you're trying to create and have managed to create with particularly the 18th century in London as this kind of hub of global, like a global hub of making in a very dynamic way. And I just wonder if you could speak a bit more about the kind of 18th century, like historic resonances that you were trying to create through the objects that you chose the historic objects, I suppose, from the collection, but also objects coming from the contemporary makers. And I'm really interested, were particular objects commissioned through the artists that you're working with, or was it, and they were given a particular brief to work to, or were they objects that they already kind of had in there, you know, had produced in their studios? So I can give you an overview of, of that, of that connection to of the 18th century in particular, which in my opinion is the best century. Uh, so none of the objects You're in good were, company there. I think. I, oh, I know, I know. I, I'm in a safe space. So none of the objects were commissioned as such. In fact, one of the terms of the Art Hunt grant was that the money had to be spent on pieces that already existed, because of course that means supporting supporting emerging artists and and contemporary artists. So all of the pieces were either already made or were works in progress when I first approached the makers in question, which answers that. But you're quite right that a lot of the pieces on display in this show are either explicitly or in some cases subtly connected with 18th century histories of making and 18th century forms and styles. And sometimes that connection is explicit. So the plastic Baroque jug by James Shaw is a great example of this 18th century resonance because his pieces in the Plastic Baroque series are formed from recycled high-density plastic, the kind of thing that your, your milk cartons are made out of. They are created by putting recycled plastic pellets into a, a gun of his own invention. Think a kind of hot glue gun on a massive scale. And this gun melts the plastic down and it's extruded through a tube, making a, a slightly digestive noise as it comes out, I'm told. And the resulting 
layers of coiled plastic have a, a very visceral effect. It's, it's, it's not to everyone's taste, but it's a really interesting way of engaging with sustainability and the need for reusing materials. But the piece in question, although it's formed of this very visceral, gooey looking layered plastic, is based upon kind of the, the form of a ewer, uh, the kind of thing that you would expect to see rendered in silver or porcelain in an 18th century context. Likewise, other works in the series, such as a um, candelabra and a tureen, are also mimicking these historic forms. Also thinking about work by René So, her piece, The Bellarmine with Bellarmine, is a contemporary and somewhat abstract rendering of the 16th and 17th century Bellarmine jugs, which we have in abundance in, in our collection. Uh, so that in itself is not an 18th century reference per se, but what is very 18th century about her work is the way in which she, um, as an artist who um, is of Chinese heritage, born in Australia, works in London and has done for the last 20 years, the way in which she is very deliberately taking and pastiching and bringing together different tropes and visual elements from different cultural contexts and merging them into one object. And that's very intentional on her part. She's interested in the ways in which London is a, has, and has always been a center for this kind of cultural merging. And the fact that, that that kind of interchange of forms and images and ideas has not necessarily always been a benign one, that there are obviously questions at play of, of colonialism, appropriation and exploitation. So the thought process that went into that piece, although the initial inspiration is a kind of Tudor or Stuart ceramic form, is something I think that's very 18th century in its intellectual approach. And the final piece I'd mentioned in this context is the stained glass gorilla by Peter Frack. Now, you don't necessarily associate either stained glass or gorillas with the, the height of 18th century uh, design, but Peter's work is one of those pieces which is included in the show, not only because it's an, an interesting example of contemporary design rendered in a historic technique, but also because Peter's own story is one that I think really resonates with 18th century making in London. Peter came to London from Poland about 12 years ago. Um, he trained in Poland as a stained glass designer, uh, but he couldn't find work there. And like many of his peers, he came to London looking for work, any work. And he was working for cash in hand jobs on building sites and so on with limited English at the time. Having been in London for a couple of years, he enrolled in English classes. And those classes were held in a church community centre in Bethnal Green, which also had and still has a kind of community art studio equipped with, among other things, stained glass um, making equipment. He noticed this and mentioned that he was a trained stained glass designer. The, the, the short version is that he was asked to give some classes in return for use of the studio and of the equipment. And today, that's where he is based. He has a thriving business as both a, a maker and restorer of stained glass. Um, 
He's involved with some significant recent commissions, including the restoration of the Church of St. John at Hackney. And I think that's such a, a wonderful example of a, a longer history in London of migration and its connection to making. If you go back to the 18th century, the obvious example would be the Huguenot, the silversmiths and, and silk weavers who fled persecution in, in France. And I think London's history of making and its history of migration have always been inextricably linked. You, you cannot disconnect those narratives. And Peter's personal story is just a, a wonderful contemporary iteration of that. Yeah, it's really interesting that you actually bring it back to the Huguenots and that kind of 18th century moment, I suppose, that historical moment when London does open up in a particular way that it hasn't necessarily before. And, and you know, very much, particularly you mentioned the Silk Weavers, I just think automatically of Spitalfields and, and that kind of area, particularly that area of London. And, you know, the museum's not located too far from there. Did that inform your sort of choices then, Lucy and, and Danielle, when you were picking objects from the 18th century to go alongside some of the more contem- the contemporary works? Were you thinking carefully about those stories as well? I'm just thinking about like, you know, Chelsea Porcelain and all these other kind of um, ceramics glass, um, you know, silver makers and designers who were not actually born in London, but very much became kind of part of the London making culture at that point. We have some of our 18th century Chelsea Porcelain on display in the show um, next to a, a piece called Venus by the contemporary ceramicist Claire Partington. And we can, we can come back to that because the connections between them are uh, one of my favorite things in the entire show. But when we were selecting the historic objects for display, I think we were more concerned with the comparison of forms rather than explicitly drawing out those connections relating to things like migration. Although I think you can absolutely read that into the connections and, and it's not tenuous. But what those historic objects really threw up for us was the idea of a sense of place and the stories of different locales within London where different forms of making have historically clustered and continue to do so today. The um, Chelsea pottery, Chelsea porcelain is a good example because you know the reason that Chelsea porcelain was made in Chelsea specifically and also the reason that bow porcelain was made in bow in East London was because of proximity to water, because of the availability of land, setting up the manufactory. You know, there are serendipitous reasons why these things existed where they did. But you can also draw on some more obvious uh, or better known examples of connections between place and making. So Hatton Garden, for example, is the centre of London's jewellery making. Spitalfields and silk, we've already mentioned. And some less well-known ones, such as the connection between Tottenham Court Road in the 19th century and the furniture trade. And I was conscious when pulling these objects together and collecting these pieces of the need to represent makers who today are working across London in a, in a variety of locations. And what became very apparent quite quickly is the ways in which contemporary makers are no longer... I would say no longer clustered in quite the way that they once were. There are definitely areas of London which have higher concentrations of of craftspeople. Um, East London still has a very heavy concentration. But the issues of rising studio rents and the lack of available spaces for making have created a, a kind of a almost an atomized 
making scene in a way that wasn't the case in the 18th century. Obviously, there are organizations like Cockpit Arts, Craft Central, who are creating and, and maintaining dedicated studio spaces, often at subsidized rates, which is very important. But I think it, it is unlikely that you would see the same kind of local concentrations that were historically the, the case in London um, for, for, re, for broader reasons of economic development, gentrification and so on. And just like continuing to think about place, I mean, you, you mentioned the kind of proximity of the Museum of London to these areas. I think it's maybe not explicitly present in the display, but thinking about the city of London as a place of makers and creative people is, is a really interesting one because, you know, I think a lot of people be surprised by the creative and commercial history of, of the city itself. And there's some really interesting work that has been done into um, women who were employed in, or who were working in the area of the city of London, often working in the luxury trades. So milliners and glove makers and fan makers and um, trunk makers, you know, all these different trades that were kind of centered around the sort of St Paul's churchyard area and I, I, yeah like I said it's not explicitly present in the display but we are rooted in an area of makers um, at the Museum of London and it's really nice that that is present in other ways in our collections and it is something that we're looking forward to talking about in our new museum when we move to Westmithfield in a few years time it's really nice to be able to kind of draw on this area that has been home to the museum for such a long time and another Another trade that I was really interested to find out had a had a history in the city is, is chair caning. Um, we'll maybe come on to talk about Rachel South's work a bit later on. She is the third generation in her family of chair caners. And Danielle acquired two really lovely pieces from her. And yeah, when I was reading up about her, her work and about the history of chair caning in London, I was really interested to read that this was a trade that was really centred around St Paul's Churchyard as well. It's so interesting to hear you talk about these long histories and this sort of unfurling intergenerational narratives. But what also struck me, uh, Danielle, when you were talking particularly about the Baroque jug is how these sort of historical resonances also shed light really powerfully and directly on these pressing social issues which I know was a kind of collecting um, impetus uh, when you were sort of sourcing the works as part of your project. So I wondered if you could talk Lucy and um, Danielle about maybe some issues uh, around things like climate change. I'm thinking about the plastic jug and how that relates to changing notions of materiality and value, right? Obviously, a ewer traditionally would have been silver, but now is plastic. And plastic is obviously something of a kind of devil's material in contemporary society. Um, and so obviously, it seems like the artists that you're engaging with and on are collecting are, are thinking about these issues in, in really sort of interesting and creative ways. Yeah, it's a really good question, Freya. And it's something that is so present within within these objects and within the kind of narratives that, that that we've pulled out for the display. So I think James Shaw speaks so interestingly about the material that he chose to work with because he kind of um, has described in a couple of interviews being quite sort of repulsed by plastic when, when he started working and how he sort of associated it with negativity. But in thinking about kind of what materials he wanted to work with, he discovered, um, I believe when he was um, a student, 
that factories would offer him waste plastic for free. You know, there was there was literally no value to this material that he he was kind of experimenting with. So he's taken something that that he found to be maybe unpleasant and not associated with luxury and high craft and creativity and has turned it into something that is really beautiful and playful and creative, but also has value right it has value as art it has value as designed products i believe that his loo roll holders are a particularly ubiquitous object that people like wait because he kind of you know he drops them online like a sort of luxury fashion product and i just think that's so interesting that this sort of twist in fate of of this material story but, but elsewhere, I think the the question of climate change is a really interesting one with Eleanor Lakeland's work. She, the piece that we have, um, it's, it's a, one of her very beautiful carved wooden voided vessels. And she treats the material she works with so beautifully. She really, really kind of elevates what could be relatively simple wooden forms and the piece that, that Danielle acquired from, from Eleanor Lakeland, it was made from a tree felled in the grounds of Dulwich College. And it was part of a, a sort of, I think, strategic felling of these trees because they were suffering from a disease which was sort of um, aggravated by global warming. Um, so it's not um, recycling in the same sense as James Shaw's piece, but she's, you know, she's taken something which has sort of, has lost its value in a way and then and then re-elevated it whilst also making a sort of statement about the dangers associated with climate change. And one other object, I think, just to come back to Rachel South's work, if that's okay, there's a really, really interesting story behind chair caning, which which kind of takes us back to, to the 18th century again. But you know, chair caning is a really interesting trade because it was something that was applied more to old furniture after a point than the new furniture and a lot of chair caners were itinerant workers who were either on the streets of London or traveling from town to town and they would repair you know repair the seats or the the seat backs of of existing furniture and as a dress and textile historian that it has really beautiful parallels with thinking about the way that the textiles were reused and recycled in the 18th century and just thinking about the fact that historically it was the material that was valued over the work and today that's really switched work human hours are valued over materials and that says so much about the way that materials and and household goods were treated and kept and preserved and reused and recycled and had these really long legacies in the 18th century Whereas today, these objects become disposable and if something breaks, you, you get rid of it. So I think Rachel South's work opens up so many interesting narratives to think about in, in the way we value objects. I think as well, that kind of brings us on to a broader question about making versus material in terms of where the value of these objects lie. And we've spoken a lot about the materials used in the finished displayed product in this exhibition and how they can draw out narratives of pressing social and cultural issues now. But also we're thinking here as well about the process of making and how that can be political now, how it can be a process that maybe has been handed down and therefore has more explicit sort of historical elements to it. So 
Can you say something a little bit more about the kind of making practices that we're seeing in this exhibition, but also how you make them visible in the exhibition itself? I think it's important to note that there are a very diverse range of making practices at play in this exhibition. And from that comes the language of how we talk about making. I just wanted to, to note that because we've we've been very careful to keep our terminology quite broad. We use making as a kind of a catch-all term for various forms of activity, but of course the individuals whose work is represented in this show self-define in a variety of ways. So some of them self-describe as makers, others as craftspeople, some as artists, some as designers. We didn't feel that it was for us to impose a set of categories or definitions on individuals and their practices. So we've respected that that self-definition. In terms of making processes being made visible in the show, um, again, the makers themselves have a voice, have a presence. And it was very important to us to emphasize that because given that the Museum of London is an institution that tells a story of people, not just of, of objects, we wanted the people behind the objects to be foregrounded. And that's, you know, it's it's very important to us that their process was was something that was mentioned. So every maker featured has both their photographic portrait present and also a short text in their own words about how London has influenced their practice. In the case of some of the makers, we've actually made the process more explicit by including raw materials or samples of raw materials that they've worked with. Uh, James Shaw would be a, a great case in point because next to the, the plastic Baroque jug that we show, we actually have a, a sample pile of the plastic pellets that he uses in the production of those pieces. So there are a variety of making practices at play which are on show in London making now. Because of course, we, we think of the hand of the maker, the lone individual in their studio, lovingly handling the clay or hammering the metal or what have you. But of course, as we know, historically, as, as well as in the contemporary context, making is not necessarily a solo endeavor, even in a studio context. So for example, the uh, large tile mural, which confronts you as you enter the display by Laura Carlin, uh, is actually a collaborative work with Joe Briggs. Uh, the, the illustrations on the mural, which tell the story of London's history from prehistory to the present day, are Laura's own work, but she collaborated with, with Joe Briggs and with a ceramics factory to actually realize those illustrations transfer printed onto ceramic tiles. A, a really, really resonant example of the collaborative process that I would love to highlight is the work of the jeweler Romilly Somerez Smith. Romilly's work is collaborative by necessity because she um, has been a jeweler for many, many years, but latterly has been suffering from a degenerative muscular disease, which has gradually rendered her unable to work with her hands. And for the last few years, she has been collaborating with several established female jewelers who, who physically realize her works. Now, I know that at first glance, that might sound a bit like she's going, oh, make me something that looks like this. 
it's far more complex and even intimate than that. In fact, such is the nature of the relationship between Romilly and her collaborators that she actually refers to them as her translators. The process by which her works, as conceived in her head, are realised in physical form is one which requires the, the jewellers in question to literally sit in the same room together so that Romilly will describe not simply what she wants something to look like, but how it should be realised. You know, what bits of gold go where and how each bead is individually strung on. So really, the, the jewellers with whom she works are amanuenses, if anything. And I think that's a fascinating story in its own right, because it really forces us to think about how we locate that hand of the maker idea in the process. And I, I think actually some of our preconceptions about what making is unintentionally could be a little bit ableist. I, I think that's actually a very important story for us to be able to tell because the process of making is frequently a collaborative one. I think obviously technology has shifted some of these discussions around sort of the dynamic of idea, object, individual agency so much as well. I think it's that point in the podcast where we ask uh, our guest to talk about an object, normally their favourite object, which is always a difficult question from their project or their exhibition or something like that. So what have you brought uh, as your chosen thing to talk about? So the object that we would really love to talk about in a bit more depth is the figure of Venus by the ceramicist Claire Partington. This figure is quite a tall standing figure. It's 70 odd centimetres high. And it shows the figure of a young woman standing, almost confronting the viewer with her dog by her side. She's a contemporary rendition of, of, of Venus, the, the Roman goddess of love, sex and fertility. And as such, she's shown as heavily pregnant. She's wearing a vest top with the words Venus emblazoned across it in, in gold cursive, a pair of blue patterned leggings and some wonderful gold Reebok classics. And her dog, which has two heads, is a staffy. Uh, she herself has four arms. So this figure is very much based on the appearance and dress of contemporary young women in, in London today. You know, it, it's taking its cues from, from streetwear and from athleisure. Venus herself has several tattoos, which are, are transfer printed onto the ceramic surface. She's wearing some wonderful Demonte jewellery. In one of her forehands, she's clutching a cigarette, notwithstanding the fact that she's heavily pregnant. She's got some great gold earrings. At the base of, of the figure, at her feet, she's surrounded by the accoutrements of adornment and I suppose vanity, a mirror, a comb, a discarded plastic water bottle, among other things. So this figure is so richly layered and has so many references encoded within it to historic ceramics, but also to a, a wonderful you know, mishmash of different mythological, religious and historical context and that's very much um, typical of Claire's work as a ceramicist. Um, her works are predominantly female figures which engage with notions of agency and beauty and sexuality. They are highly allegorical in their frame of reference 
but the figures themselves are, I think, are never reduced to pure allegory. They retain, I think, a sense of individuality and character, and that's very much the case here. This Venus looks like she'd be up for a good laugh if you had a, a pint with her, along with her, her four arms, which are a reference to, to Hindu iconography. She could probably hold four pints at a time, so I wouldn't want to go head to head with her in a drinking game. This piece was selected for the display and, and subsequently put on display in part for its engagement with contemporary fashion tropes, which, which maybe Lucy can talk a bit more about, but also because of the ways in which it harks back to historic porcelain figures um, of the type produced in London in the 18th century. So of course, in, in that period, you have the establishment of several significant porcelain manufactories, Chelsea and Bow, I think being the, the best known. Um, there were also other smaller manufactories, briefly at Limehouse and also in St. James's. These manufactories turned out, among other things, decorative porcelain figures of allegorical females based on classical mythology predominantly. So in the show, we've actually displayed this figure of Venus alongside two examples of those allegorical females, one of which is a figure of a shepherdess, very uh, pastoral and Arcadian with her, her lamb and her crown of flowers. And the other is the allegorical figure of justice with her hand held aloft um, as if to hold the, the balance or pair of scales that is justice's sort of um, iconographic attribute. By comparison with Claire's figure, those little porcelain ladies are well, similarly highly decorative on their surface, but they're not meant to represent character of any kind. They are a decorative anonymous type and Claire's work engages with and parodies and pastiches that approach by applying the same kind of layered, a busy surface decoration, rendering it in a way that gives individuality to her figures. I think her work is a very effective commentary on how women, um, how the female form, if you like, has been co-opted and instrumentalized for these very anonymized allegorical narrative purposes in the past. And she's really trying to invert that trope and, and turn it on its head. I think what's really lovely about Claire's work and, and in the way that she's used clothes, she's used them as a visual language. So there are kind of really specific aesthetic choices that she's made and how she has dressed her, her Venus that makes sense to a modern viewer. So a modern viewer can look at this and draw conclusions about who this person is and where they come from and what they're interested in based on what she's wearing. In, and she's created a contemporary visual language, which is very similar to the visual language created by the Chelsea pieces that would have made sense to viewers in, in, that, in that time. So there's just a really nice, yeah, a, a form of uh, communication of identity that makes sense to the audience that each piece is intended for, that I think works really well and ties the pieces together. And one of the things I've really enjoyed pointing out to visitors to the display is if you just look at the faces, the face of Claire's figure and the face of the Chelsea figures, they are almost identical. And that does that magical thing of kind of closing the time gap of a couple of centuries, that suddenly you see that 
these are doing the same things. They're just doing them in a different time in a way that's really clever. I wonder as well if there's something to say here about the way that these objects are consumed. So thinking about the 18th century kind of versions of, of this figure and maybe the audience for them being relatively affluent middling to upper class people who would display them in their homes and then thinking in contrast what the artist is intending for this piece and the fact that it ends up in your exhibition at the moment what do you think is going on there is that a sort of a a commentary on how we specifically consume ceramics is it a kind of broader discussion about the value of making more generally and of thinking about the original pieces would presumably have been relatively mass produced whereas this is presumably a one-off a one-off piece so does that make a difference in terms of how we value it today and how we consume it interestingly I'm, I'm not sure that it makes that much of a difference because although this work by Claire is in our museum collection and can be seen by the public while it's on display many of her pieces are in private collections she's represented by by a couple of galleries and similarly um, to the 18th century context you, you would have to be relatively affluent to purchase one of these as an individual. Thinking about those 18th century figures uh, I know that both uh, Karen Harvey and Amanda Vickery have, have written about the process of purchasing and consuming porcelain in, in an 18th century context. And particularly, there's, a, there's something that quite strikes me in a, an article by Karen Harvey on punch pots and domesticity, on how women translated clothing into ceramics, which is to say that they sold their clothing and used the proceeds to purchase porcelain. Now, we're talking about, you know, as kind of a middling sort to to upper class elite context here but that process of exchange um, whereby it's, it's not simply a straightforward cash transaction that there is a, a longer chain of transactions taking place to enable the purchase of, of the ceramic figures is a really really interesting one to be honest I'm not quite sure that, that would translate today I think if I were to sell off some bits and pieces from my wardrobe I don't think it would enable me to to buy one of these as a as a private individual um, a girl can dream I suppose but what's interesting in in that historic context is that the purchase of these female figures is largely coded as a female pastime in its own right and I would say that Claire's work today although it is um, quite explicitly informed by by feminist thought on on the female body and on the presentation of that body. I'm not sure that consumption of her work is coded as female in quite the same way, which I would hope is a a positive commentary on on the breaking down of um, consumption boundaries and and patterns. I love this piece, I have to say, and I love Claire's work, but um, particularly about the different, the mix of materiality. And yes, you've got this kind of traditional glazed, uh, and Alan earthenware but then you've got the mixed media and the, and the costume jewelry that she's added in as well which I love but the scale is just really hitting me the fact that this is over a meter tall and I just I, the contrast and the juxtaposition I suppose that creates with these much smaller Chelsea figures that are um, side by side I've just wondered visually that's just a really interesting choice just how large she's making these sculptures at this point and her, her work is um, almost uniformly at this scale. Uh, certainly the, the, the full-length figures are. 
And I think it's very much in keeping with the very declarative and assertive nature of her characters. I, th I think of them as characters, uh, as in, you know, they have personalities in their own right. At least that's that's how I perceive their work. Whereas you know, the delicate, pretty shepherdesses of, of the 18th century are made to be popped up on a shelf and admired up close. I think Claire's work really, it fills the space and it demands the attention of the viewer in what I think is a, a very, very determined way. And I think that's what makes Claire's work interesting, that she is she is working within a set of parameters that she set for herself, but she's constantly testing the boundaries and the elasticity of those parameters. And in a way, that's actually a really nice parallel with what we are doing in this in this show, because we have been working with a set of parameters from the start, but we have constantly been testing those as well and seeing how they connect and, and how they can be played around with. So actually, now, now I think of it, that's actually quite apt. You've been listening to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and to subscribe.